everyone. This is Amanda Borchel Dan. And I'm Jessica Steinberg, your host for Times Will Tell, a weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. Hi, everyone. Amanda Borchel Dan here. This week on Times Will Tell, I'm speaking with a woman who is quickly becoming one of my favorite authors, Alyssa Friedland. Alyssa has a new book out this week, The Most Likely Club, but many of you listeners will already know her from two extremely Jewy earlier works, Last Summer at the Golden Hotel and The Floating Feldmans. Alyssa has written two other works and is expecting the publication of her first children's book very soon. Today, in addition to working on her own books, Alyssa also teaches novel writing at her alma mater, Yale University. Now, if that doesn't impress you, she's also a Columbia Law School grad and worked as an associate at a major law firm before turning to writing full-time. Her new novel, The Most Likely Club, has some of her trademark Jewish flavor in the characters and touches on topics that are definitely near and dear to me. Alyssa will tell us more right now. Enjoy! Alyssa, thank you so much for joining me today. Where am I finding you? You are finding me on Long Island in New York. (laughs) Oh, fantastic. So we're here, of course, to speak about your newest book, The Most Likely Club, but also some of your other great books that coincidentally, actually, I've read four out of five of your novels without even knowing that they were written by you, aside from the last one, of course, which I asked for it. Wow, that's very flattering. I'm very happy to hear that. You might be the only person other than my mother to be able to say that. I'm your number one fan, but not in a misery kind of way. I just really enjoyed (laughs) your work. And I just uh, would read the synopsis of the novel, buy it, read it and say, huh, this sounds somewhat familiar in tone to another book that I really enjoyed and read. And then I looked up and saw, yep, same author. Again and again, that happened to me. It was just really kind of coincidental and strange, but fantastic. Well, I'm very happy to hear that. I do think I have a voice that carries through from book to book. So I do try, of course, to vary the plots, create new characters, always, you know, keep it interesting for myself, not only for the reader to have something new, but for me, I'm the one who has to be with it a lot longer than the reader does, you know, while I'm writing it. And so I do try to always, you know, come up with very new ideas. But I think like my voice is my voice. So I'm not surprised that there are echoes of it in all the books. So for me personally, I kind of divide your works into extremely very Jewy and medium Jewy. Maybe the one (laughs) novel I didn't read is less Jewy. That could be another category. But in the very, very Jewy category, we have, of course, Last Summer at the Golden Hotel and The Floating Feldmans. Very Jewy. No more Jewy than that, I think, in terms of American Judaism. (laughs) This is the epitome of Jewy, Jewy, Jewy. And then medium Jewy, I would put your newest novel, The Most Likely Club, which comes out September 6th, and then Love and Miscommunication. Now, the one novel I didn't read, where would that fit in the Jewy or very, very Jewy spectrum? I would say, no, the intermission, the one you did not read, is definitely like medium to low Jewy. So you, you haven't missed out on any super Jewy books. <laughs> Fantastic. So let's just very briefly speak about the plot behind The Most Likely Club. Give us a, a couple sentences. What is this book about? The Most Likely Club is about four women that were very close friends in high school. And 
they are reunited. Well, three of the four of them reunite at their 25th high school reunion. And one of them is unable to make it, she says, because of work obligations. And being back together on campus where they went to school, seeing their former classmates just, you know, fills them with all the usual angsty feelings. And they really take a moment to take stock of their lives where they are 25 years out of high school and think about, is this where they wanted to be? Is this where they thought they would end up? And after, you know, a sort of boozy night of reminiscing and remembering who they once were, they decide to try to make their high school superlatives come true. They're most likely in the yearbook and they embark on this plan to actualize some of their dreams from when they were teenagers. And as you can imagine, when you're in your mid forties, it's difficult to make that kind of life change. And so we follow these women as they try to right the ship of their lives, but of course, you know, are met with all sorts of obstacles. And then the fourth friend who's not able to make it to the reunion, of course, she folds into the story and we learn some big surprises about her. And uh, and it's really just the story of what it's like, you know, to reach middle age, look back and, and take stock of where you are and really take time to think about if this is where you want to be and when is it too late to make a change. Not only do I know what you're talking about, I live what you're talking about. I realized suddenly when I was reading this book that my high school union will be 30 years in uh, the spring. So yes, I fully grasped all the different dramas and concerns of each of these women. And it really felt like they were all in me, or I was all in them. And when you were writing these characters, did you feel that yourself that you're splintering off different concerns and challenges of your life as a working mother, wife, professional, and putting it into these four different women? Definitely. I mean, when I think about it, I mean, I won't bore your listeners with going into each character and exactly how I'm similar to them. But for sure, you know, there are some that I'm more similar to than others. You know, I would say I'm not a doctor, obviously, I'm a writer, but the doctor character in the book is probably the one that I relate to the most in my day to day life, because she and her husband are both working professionals, and they have three children, just like me and my husband, we have three children. And I definitely still do the lion's share of the child. I wouldn't necessarily say like child raising. I think we share that. But I certainly do the lion's share of the camp forms, the health forms, the dentist visits, you know, the selection of camp and after schools. I could go on and on. And uh, I know many women who are listening to this can relate to that. And so her life, Priya, the character is named in the book, is really similar to mine. She's really overwhelmed. She doesn't quite understand why it has to be this way, like why her husband, who works basically in the same job, they work at the same hospital, is sort of let off scot-free and he can go out for a run while, you know, she's buried in like uploading, you know, the COVID vaccine cards, essentially, you know, and uh, she just doesn't have a free second to herself. Sometimes when she thinks about what she'd want to do with her free time, she can't even figure it out because she hasn't had free time in so long. And so she's a character that like, I really, really relate to in my day-to-day life, although it was fun making her a doctor because it did still let me escape a little bit because I, you know, I don't even know that much about the medical profession and I had to research that. And it 
kind of let me have a little bit of distance from her so that I didn't like pour every single detail of my life. Like if she had been a writer, that probably would have been a bit too much. So I have a lot in common with her, but the other women too, there's all these different, you know, you know, one character is really fixated on her weight. And I'm definitely someone who like, if I had a reunion coming up, I would try some crash diet and I could see myself getting like really obsessed with like how I look when I'm going back to school, which is of course, like, you know, not the ideal way to be spending your time and your energy. And, and, you know, and then the other women as well, uh, there's a very powerful CEO. I'm not her, but she's just someone I, I don't know if I relate to her as much as I just think about women like that and the double standard that is applied to women in positions of power and how unfair it is, you know, like the Hillary Clintons of the world who are just like, you know, the more ambitious they are, the more maligned they are. So yeah, I have bits and pieces of myself and all the women and, you know, things I see from my friends and just from like the headlines that interest me. I just found myself nodding, laughing, wanting to cry with some of the situations. And we won't spoil it because it's definitely worth reading. I just want to mention that while it may fit in the chiclet category, it is so deep in its message. And it's so hit home to me as a working mother of seven. It is no no question that all of these concerns that especially the Priya character has, every woman I know in our situation of working and having children is facing this this mental load challenge. So please, readers, do check this book out. We'll hear more from Alyssa Friedland after this break. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. Now, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We are privileged to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. Hi, Times Will Tell listeners. We're glad you're with us for Times Will Tell, our weekly Times Visual podcast. You should also check out our daily briefing, the 15-minute podcast dropped every Sunday through Thursday, in which we speak to our fellow Times of Israel reporters and correspondents, covering the very latest news and headlines. You can subscribe to the daily briefing wherever you find your podcasts. And we're back with Alyssa Friedland, the author of The Most Likely Club. Now let's turn to 
the last summer at the Golden Hotel, which is actually, can I say this, referred to in the Most Likely Club. I loved that. That was fantastic. So tell us briefly, what is this book about? That book is about a hotel in the Catskills, uh, very much like the hotel in Dirty Dancing, if you can picture Kellerman's. Um, I know that's a movie that basically everyone with a pulse has seen. So it's about a hotel uh, that was once, you know, the place to see and be seen, a thriving enterprise, uh, but it's set in modern times and it's really on its last leg and uh, needs a lot of refurbishment, isn't attracting guests the way it used to. It's co-owned by two Jewish families, of which there are now three generations of each family, the Goldmans and the Weingolds. And one member of the Weingold family runs the hotel on a day-to-day basis, and he receives an offer from a casino operator who wants to buy the hotel, tear it down, and put a casino up in its place, which is what happened um, at the Concord Resort, which is one of the greats in the area. And he calls a family meeting at the hotel and reluctantly, the three generations make their way back to campus. Um, I guess I like a lot of back to campus because that's also the case in the most likely club. Um, But I do think there's something about like everyone, you know, it's like a tempest in a teapot, like you put everyone in one place and just watch what happens. And so these three generations come back to the hotel and we learn what's going on in all of their lives. They all have full lives outside of the hotel. And uh, so we get slivers of their lives and the complications and the issues they're facing and then how those issues affect what they want to do with the hotel, if they want to sell it or if they want to try to revive it. And in some ways, it's really an intergenerational story because the grandchildren who are in their 20s have a lot of ideas about how to make the hotel hip and cool and attract millennials and attract people who are living their lives on social media. And of course, the grandparents, the founder generation can't really make heads or tails of some of these bizarre suggestions like, let's make our own honey and have beehives. Let's have like all vegan food options. Let's, uh, you know, let's have goat yoga, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, as you I'm sure can understand, they have very different gener- um, ideas of what to do with the hotel. But for everyone, it's an important part of their legacy. And so it's a really an emotional decision that's you know, has to be made. So I won't give away the ending. Yeah, don't give away the ending because I was actually surprised by the ending. But both in this book and in The Floating Fellmans, it's it's really a tale of several generations getting together and what, what ensues, right? In these little microcosms, The Floating Fellmans on a cruise. In this case, there were, the other families were at the Golden Hotel. And you are so good at writing the different voices of the different generations. Talk to me about how you capture the voice of a 80-year-old versus how you capture the voice of a 20-something-year-old. I, first of all, thank you for saying that. I definitely work hard at it. If I had to say why I am good at that, it's probably that I just have a really good ear. Like I just, when I'm out in the world, first of all, I live in New York City. So living in New York City, just going down the block, like you are just constantly surrounded by people of all different ages, genders, backgrounds. Like I could imagine if I had a more rural existence and I, you know, worked from home in a quiet town and, you know, 
went for a walk and maybe saw one person in an hour, like it might be a very different experience. Whereas like if I go to buy milk in Manhattan, like I'm just, you know, surrounded by voices. And so I feel really lucky because I have exposure to like a wide range of voices just when I walk down my block. And I think that because I am just like a curious person and I'm always listening, like I am able to absorb like the intonation, the the verbiage, the mannerisms. Like I look around and I listen and that I think it helps me channel people that are in a different stage of life than I'm in. And so I just feel really grateful. Like I I credit New York City with my ability to channel these voices that are very different than my own. Because otherwise, like, I don't know where else, like I could say that I get it from. Because yes, do I know older people? Sure. I have parents. I have in-laws. Do I know people in their 20s? I I do teach at the college level. But the truth is like, I'm in the classroom with them. I'm doing most of the talking for two hours and I leave. Like, so I don't think it comes from that. I think it really comes from just like living in a bustling place and having a good ear. That's so interesting. And as you mentioned, you do teach. So is this something that you would give as a tip to your students? Because you're teaching writing, correct? Mm -hmm. I teach novel writing. I mean, not everyone can have the luxury of getting to live in New York City and not everybody wants to. And for some people from a writing perspective, that would be a terrible place to live because it's so full of distraction. And there's like, you know, the Ralph Waldo Emerson version of writing, which is like, you got to go and tuck yourself, you know, in a cabin and, and have quiet. And so there are certainly many people who wouldn't get a stitch of work done if they lived in such a bustling place and would like to be off the grid. So I don't know that I would necessarily give that advice, but I would say like, maybe just see what you're good at. And if you feel like it's a really big stretch for you and it's not coming across as convincing to write like an 82 year old man, don't write an 82 year old man, like write the person that you feel comfortable writing, that you feel comfortable channeling. And maybe that's someone that's very similar to you. Maybe that's someone that you knew once upon a time very closely in life, or you have some experience with, but you know, you'll, you can tell, I think like if it's coming, if it's a massive struggle to channel someone else's voice, like if it's very integral to the story, I would just make it my business to at least find someone, one or two people who can be like an authenticity read. Like I would, you know, if you're writing an 82 year old man, find an 82 year old man, you know, or thereabouts and have them read it and, and correct it. I mean, when I was first starting out, even just writing a male voice, my husband would read my work and he would say like, no man, it wasn't so much no man would say that because I hear what men say. So that part was easy. It was no man would think that if it was like writing their internal thoughts, he's like, granted now he's not the wife, you know, he can't speak for all men, but like he can, you know, maybe speak for a majority of men, or at least tell me that something didn't ring true to him personally. And then it was up to me to decide what to do with that. But like, I don't think there's any reason why someone shouldn't reach out and have someone read the work. I mean, for this book, the most likely club, my publisher used to hire, you know, people to read the book, to read the characters um, for an authenticity read, because like, there's, you know, an Asian character, there's a bisexual character, there's an Indian character, like I am none of those things. And so they have these authenticity reads done. And I'm so grateful for that, like, someone to say, like, that's really not the way it works in an, you know, Indian family, or that's not the way I would phrase it. And like, 
And I really give my publisher a lot of credit because they said to me, like, you don't have to take any of this. This is for you to absorb and decide what you want to do with, you know, like barring if there was something very offensive, they would want me to do something about it. But like, it was up to me. And I took like basically almost everything because I just want to sound as authentic as humanly possible. It's interesting that you talk about uh, wanting to sound authentic in these uh, niche uh, identities of the Indian or the bisexual, et cetera, et cetera. Because at the same time, while they do, to me at least, uh, sound authentic, definitely your Jewish uh, voice sounds authentic. It's always very universal stories that you're writing, too. Well, I think that's really true because, like, we're all still people and we all still feel the same things, you know? So you want to maybe be like factually correct about something. Of course you want to be factually correct. You know, if you, if the, all, the only Indian food you know is the kind served in a restaurant and that's never something that's served in an Indian home, like you're not, that's not great, you know? But like, does an Indian 16 year old girl feel self-conscious in high school? Yeah. So does the Asian girl and the black girl and the white girl and the Jewish girl. Like, Feeling self-conscious when you're 16 in high school is like about as universal as it gets. Like being middle-aged and thinking like, oh my God, how did I end up here? And is this what I want out of life? Again, like it's a it's a privilege to be able to take the time to even think about that. And I, I do want to acknowledge that. Like not everyone has, you know, the luxury of like making the changes they want to make. But I would say if given the time and the space to think about it, these women are 43. If you ask like any 43 year old, take an hour of quiet and think about where you are in your life. Is there anything you want to change? I'm pretty sure they'd be able to come up with a couple of things. Who has an hour though, right? <laughs> no matter what they look like or what their background is. Exactly. After this short break, we'll hear more from Alyssa Friedland, author of Last Summer at the Golden Hotel and the Floating Feldmans. <laughs> Hi, it's Sarah Tuttle Singer from the Times of Israel. Come join our community and support fast and fair independent journalism. You can sign up with the link at the bottom of every single article on the site. And we're back with Alyssa Friedland. Uh, let's talk about how Judaism plays a role in your writing. Nobody, none of the characters were especially observant or religious Jews, but they are so steeped in the culture, even in the less Jewy books that we identified. There's such striking cultural Judaism. The main event in the most likely club is this bar mitzvah that uh, one of the characters is loathing and looking forward to and dreading and all the emotions. Not perhaps the main event, but one of the main events. And you're using this cultural touchstone in most of the books. So how is Judaism playing a role in your writing? I think that's because it just plays such a big role in my own life that it spills over onto the page. I am not observant, but I'm just very culturally Jewish as like comes across in my books. I went to a Jewish day school. I go to synagogue on the major holidays. We celebrate Shabbat in our home, even if we're not observing it, you know, like in the religious way, but like we light candles, we eat challah, we have a Shabbat dinner. And I just like, this is the world I know. It's also like the humor I know. Like my grandparents were immigrants. Even my parents were immigrants from Europe. Um, they were born after the war and they came here, you know, from Eastern Europe. And so this like, that's literally the humor that I grew up with. You know, this like sort of very Borscht Belt, you know, Eastern European Jewish humor. And, uh, 
it's just who I am. I feel like every I'm just steeped in like Jewish culture from a very early age. And I grew up in a Jewish town. I went to a Jewish camp. I just go on and on and on. So I feel like my Judaism is just like a really big part of who I am. And so then it ends up like becoming a natural part of my writing. Even when I don't set out to write a Jewish book, like I end up like incorporating some of it because I just, I think I just like it and I feel comfortable. Like it's the opposite of needing like the authenticity reads to try to write something different. Like here is like where I'm in my milieu. Like I know what I'm talking about. And that feels good because writing's really hard. And then when I can like write about something that I feel like I know, first of all, I feel like I can push boundaries more because I feel more comfortable. And I could just be more creative and find even more humor because I'm not like first trying to learn about it and then write about it. Like I already know it. So it's just, it's a comfortable space for me to be in as a writer. So I find myself returning to it. And have you ever had any kind of uh, anti-Semitic blowback because of this? Zero, absolutely zero. And I love saying that because it's the honest to God truth. And I've talked about this in previous interviews, but when last summer at the Golden Hotel came out, May 2021, happened to be the same month that like there was a lot of media coverage about the rise in anti-Semitism and the statistics were like staggering about the anti-Semitic attacks that were happening across the globe or up something, some crazy percentage, like up 100%, something really, really horrifying. And my book came out and it was like, received with like the warmest embrace by so many non-Jewish readers. Like most of my readers aren't Jewish. And like, I could just tell you that you go on my Instagram, look up the comments and it was like thousand comments of like, I didn't know anything about Jewish culture. This is the first book I've read where I've learned a lot about Jewish identity and Jewish culture. And I'm fascinated. And I had no idea about the Borscht Belt and the Catskills. And I ended up doing further research. It was like one positive thing after another, after another, after another. And it was like a great reminder of like, yes, there are bad people doing crazy things, but most people don't hate Jews. And most people were like very excited to read and learn about Jewish culture in the way that like, I love, I've read a number of books set in India and I just, I was late to reading The Henna Artist, but it's set in India. And I was like, I loved it. Like, I feel so lucky that I got to read that book and learn about Indian culture. And like, that is certainly the reception I got. And the book sold well enough and was distributed widely enough that I can honestly say that I never came across, that it means something, that I never came across like a single anti-Semitic reaction. That's really heartening. I wonder about this next novel's reception because it is basically about the inner lives of women of a certain age, my age, essentially. And there's not a lot of empathy for that in American society. There's, of course, the Karen meme. There's all sorts of things of that nature where we, wow, 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 women can't have it all. Women want to have it all, but suck it up and move on. Are you worried at all about this kind of reception? Yeah, I would say I am a bit worried about that, that like people just, are sick of like what they would call whining, you know, like enough. But I wasn't so worried that I wasn't going to write it because like I feel like I'm living it and I have a, I, I lead a very privileged life and yet I still feel like I can't take it. Like I'm losing it as a, a working mom and I'm trying and I'm just like coming apart at the seams. And if I feel it, I can only imagine, you know, people who don't have as much privilege and, and the luxuries that I have in my life. And so 
I know that I write from a place of privilege, aware how much worse it is for people who don't have the resources to have a babysitter and, you know, and not have to worry about every doctor bill that comes in. I, yeah, I guess I'm worried, but I don't write only to like, you know, first of all, there's no such thing as like guaranteeing like only favorable reviews or guaranteeing that everybody is going to love your book, you know, because that's just like not the right, this isn't the industry you join if you only want praise. So I think that women, like mostly I'll be read by women. I don't think that I'll have a lot of male readers for this book. In general, I have mostly female readers. And so it'll be interesting. I think that people's responses are going to be very like personal. Like they're just like, it's going to strike a chord either very positively or negatively. Like people are going to be, have very strong reactions to the book. And I have to be prepared for that. All right. I'm reminding our listeners that we're about a week and a bit ahead of the publication of this newest book. So by the time they hear it, everything will be fine. It will be published. The world will embrace it. I feel sure having read it just recently and really such a pleasure reading your work as coincidentally as it has been. And I will, of course, follow you more intentionally from here on out. So really such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. It was very fun to discuss my books with you. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Times Will Tell from the Times of Israel. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein. Please subscribe wherever you find your podcast and check out our daily briefing news show every Sunday through Thursday. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. Until next week. Shalom. Shalom.